This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. World War II Radio Podcast. Today's episode consists of two segments, both originally broadcast on August 20th, 1942. The first is CBS's The World Today, with a focus on the Dieppe Raid, as well as other updates on the war and on the home front. And the last few seconds of this broadcast are cut off. As noted in our previous episode, although the initial reports call the raid a success, Later news would show the raid is considered by most to be, if not a total disaster, at least unsuccessful. Notably, more than half of the Allied attackers would be killed, captured, or wounded in the raid. That more pragmatic view of the Dieppe raid is hinted at in the second part of today's episode, a Canadian broadcasting company news update on the raid from a reporter who was in the attack. Canadian troops made up the majority of the infantry involved in the Dieppe Raid. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Bickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcast, where you can find the links to past episodes as well as all the books featured in our podcast. Thanks for listening. Enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. CBS World News brings you the world today, presented Monday through Saturday at the same time. During the next 15 minutes, you will hear news and analysis by Quincy Howe and CBS correspondents at home and abroad. And here are the major highlights in the news of the day. The first official communique on the Dieppe raid describes it as a success. Eyewitness accounts emphasize the importance of naval air power. On the Russian front, the Red Army still holds its Stalingrad, and our Navy Department says that Marines now hold several of the Solomon Islands. And now, Quincy Howe and the news. In exactly two minutes, we shall hear from London the full and latest details on yesterday's big commando raid at Dieppe. The first eyewitness accounts of the action emphasize that the invaders established complete air and naval superiority. The first official communique from combined operations describes it as a successful demonstration of coordination of all three services. On the Russian front, northwest and southwest of Stalingrad, the Red Army still holds and continues to inflict severe punishment on the Germans. But beyond Krasnodar, which the Russians abandoned yesterday, the Germans have made further progress toward the Black Sea. The El Alamein front in Egypt remains quiet, except for patrol activity and one air battle in which outnumbered British Spitfires shot down four and damaged eight of a squadron of 20 Messerschmitts. The British suffered no losses. Wendell Wilkie lunched at the White House today and then announced that he would leave leave in about three weeks' time to perform certain services to the government in the Middle East and in Russia. Gardner Coles and Joseph Barnes of the Office of War Information will accompany him. Chinese troops have recaptured two more Kangxi province towns on the Hanchow-Nanchang Railway. This puts them in possession of 50 miles of track and cuts an important Japanese supply line. In our own hemisphere, an Axis submarine has sunk the sixth Brazilian vessel in recent days and President Vargas has ordered 100 Germans to be held in Brazil as hostages 
for 11 Brazilians detained by the Nazis in France. The Navy Department has issued a communique stating that Marines are now mopping up Japanese forces in the recently captured Solomon Islands. Enemy aircraft, destroyers, and submarines have inflicted only minor damage on our forces. And in Brooklyn, Jim Farley's candidate, Attorney General John J. Bennett, Jr., won the Democratic nomination for the governorship of New York. Bennett received the votes of 623 delegates to the state convention as against 393 votes for Senator James Meade, who had the backing of President Roosevelt. The convention then made it unanimous for Bennett. And now to CBS London, Trout reporting. Britain is getting the details of the Allied raid on the French coast bit by bit. What most people have been waiting for is the big communique from Combined Operations Headquarters summing up the whole thing, the kind of statement that is usually made only after the men behind the desks have had time to collect the facts and sift the evidence. That long-awaited communique has just been given out in London tonight, and I have part of it in front of me. It starts like this. Reports now received from the force commanders make it possible to give a full coordinated story of the Combined Operations Raid. These reports show that, as a combined operation, the raid was a successful demonstration of coordination of all three services. A large military force embarked on board naval vessels and transports. This force assembled and negotiated a most hazardous sea passage. Troops were landed on all the six beaches selected at the time laid down. The raid had, as its objectives, a testing by an offensive on a larger scale than previously, of the defenses of what is known to be a heavily defended section of the coast, the destruction of German batteries, of a radio location station which plays an important part in the German attacks on our channel convoys, the destruction of German military personnel and equipment, and the taking of prisoners. The raid was a reconnaissance in force having a vital part in our agreed offensive policy. It was known that as a consequence of our avowed aggressive policy, the Germans had recently been heavily reinforcing the coastal defenses of the whole of the occupied territory. And the late communique goes on, heavy opposition was anticipated. In fact, it became clear during the raid that the enemy had brought additional troops and guns to the Dieppe area quite recently. Despite this heavy opposition, says the communique, forces were landed on all the beaches together with some tanks. Succeeded in destroying two batteries and the radio location station, inflicting heavy casualties upon the enemy forces, in sinking two small vessels, and in bringing back a number of prisoners. Our troops, the majority of whom were Canadians, remained ashore for nearly nine hours from dawn and were then re-embarked in the naval vessels, which throughout this period were lying close off the French coast, assisting our landing forces by a heavy bombardment. The tanks which had been landed, and some of which succeeded in breaking into the town, were ordered to be blown up and destroyed. Throughout the landing, extensive air cover for both ships and landing forces was provided by aircraft from all operational commands of the Royal Air Force, from the United States Army Air Force, from the Royal Canadian Air Force, the Royal New Zealand Air Force, and the Polish, Czech, Norwegian, and Fighting French squadrons. While the principal objective of the air operations was to give support to the landing and cover to the forces during the land engagement and to the naval aircraft, there in fact developed one of the greatest air battles of the war, says this latest combined operations communique. And it goes on to say, 
although this air battle had not been planned as one of the objectives of the operation, the Germans were forced to call up aircraft reinforcements from all parts of occupied France, Holland, and Belgium. Many of these enemy aircraft were engaged before they ever reached the area of the operations, large formations being broken up and dispersed, particularly over the mouth of the Somme. During the engagement, 91 German aircraft are officially known to have been destroyed, and about twice that number have probably been destroyed or damaged. In all these operations, 98 of our planes were lost, and the pilots of 30 are saved. Throughout the operation, the naval forces were under heavy air attack and land artillery bombardment. Despite this heavy attack, our only naval losses were a fairly large number of landing craft and one destroyer, HMS Barclay, which was so seriously damaged that he had to be sunk by our own forces. So reads, in part, the combined operations communique, which sums up the raid on the French coast. Columbia listeners have already heard an eyewitness description of the raid. Now, many of these details are as new to me tonight as to you, perhaps newer. I've been traveling in Britain, Scotland, the north of England, Northern Ireland. Traveling in this country these days frequently means going without news as well as without food and sleep. Railroad station newsstands display permanent signs, no newspapers of any kind. Of course, almost everybody who stays put listens to the home news broadcasts, and in crowded railway carriages, the word goes round. Churchill's been to Russia. We've made a big raid on Dieppe. That's how I heard about it, in a railroad car, blue with tobacco smoke and buzzing with exciting conversation, the kind in which somebody makes a remark at least once a minute. I'm telling you this because when I got back to London this evening and began catching up on the details of the raid, I was able to check back and recall how much of what I had heard by word of mouth was rumor and how much fact. The friendly British people who passed on the news in trains and on station platforms were fairly reliable news reporters. That is, they exaggerated very little. They steered clear of wild rumors, and mostly they were interested in just two main points. One was the splendid air support our side had in this operation. The other was the fact that this combined operation was a test, an experiment. There were no wild rumors about a second front. There was a great deal of curiosity about the results this experiment would show. That's the way it seemed to a traveler in wartime Britain, where newspapers are scarce. Fuel conservation means that radios are turned on only at certain hours, and news is passed around, as in the old days, by word of mouth. And now to CBS Washington, Eric Severide reporting. Military experts say men learn, and learn quickly in desperate combat like the nine hours at Dieppe yesterday. And these men, they say, who've gone through something like that, acquire a feel for combat that's difficult to impart in any other way. Well, the Army is going to make use of those Dieppe-trained men. Under Secretary of War Patterson says that part of the American Rangers who took part will return to the United States. Here they'll teach other men what they learned for bigger missions of the future. Those words, bigger missions of the future, are Mr. Patterson's. Others of the Dieppe-trained rangers will be used to teach American forces already in Britain. Patterson also reports about Henry J. Kaiser. He's the West Coast shipbuilder, you know, who wants to build cargo planes. Well, Patterson says that Kaiser hasn't yet given any indication that he's found the materials to build those planes. The Army'd like the planes, Patterson says, but it doesn't want to upset the present program to get them. 
but Kaiser also had something to say about it today. If engine manufacturers can't supply him with the motors he needs, he says, he believes he can produce them himself within a year, 1500 a month. There's a lot of talk in the Capitol today about inflation. Many believe that Judge Rosenman, after he finishes his investigation, will recommend to the president the creation of a super board to sit on prices. But the Senate doesn't seem to agree with Agriculture Secretary Wickard on one way to start. Wickard called yesterday for repeal of the 110% of parity provision for farm prices. Farm organization leaders say they're shocked at Mr. Wickard's proposal. Senator Taft suggested a trade, repeal the 110% provision, and at the same time enact wage controls. Congress might consider that, he says. Republican leader McNary and Senator Russell agree, although cautiously. But there seems little likelihood that farm block leaders are going to sacrifice that hard-won 110% clause, wage controls or not. Chairman Reynolds of the Senate Military Affairs Committee made a speech today that brought on a verbal tilt with Senators Bridges and Norris and resulted in a rebuke from Majority Leader Barclay. Reynolds said the United States should call on Britain to grant immediate independence to India. That would give the world faith in the United Nations, he said. Bridges retorted that speech wasn't helping the unity of the United Nations, and Norris asked Reynolds how he would like Britain to demand abolition of poll taxes in certain U.S. localities. Mr. Reynolds is from one of those localities. Barclay charged Reynolds to observe caution in his statements because of his position as chairman of the military committee. Standard Oil's president told the Senate Patent Committee today that Standard Oil installations in the Dutch East Indies were destroyed before they fell into Japanese hands. But, he said, the Japanese seized refineries of the Royal Dutch Shell Company before they could be put out of commission. The president has ended Navy control at the plant of the General Cable Company at Bayonne, New Jersey, and has returned the plant to its owners. He took the action on advice of the Navy after the employees voted no further work stoppages. Rear Admiral Harold L. Vickery, who is vice chairman of the Maritime Commission, canceled the 200 Liberty ship contract with Andrew J. Higgins, the New Orleans shipbuilder, explained the situation today to the House Merchant Marine Committee. Victory said he considered Higgins a genius who could have applied the assembly line technique to shipbuilding. But, he said, there simply wasn't enough steel to go around. Admiral Vickery took full responsibility for terminating the contract with Higgins and explained the reason he had done so. Production rates of all yards were going up, he said, while the Higgins yard was under construction. His yard would have been the last to be completed. Admiral Vickery re reported that he had considered cutting out four other yards and letting work continue at the Higgins plant. But, he added, when all the facts were before me, I went before the commission and recommended discontinuance of the Higgins project. I return you to CBS New York and Quincy Howe. The Soviet midnight communique just in says that the Russians are still holding on those two crucial fronts southwest and northwest of Stalingrad. And an Ankara dispatch has, has come in prophesying a German second front in the Middle East as the logical consequence of the present campaign in the Caucasus. Continued German progress going on in this region makes this prophecy very immediate indeed. The larger implication of the current news is the situation in South Russia, which looks desperate. This raid at Dieppe was taken as an indication of the dangerous situation there. And here are the main dangers in Russia. First, that the Russian offensive power may be broken. Second, that Russia's southern armies may be cut off. Third, that supplies may be blocked from the south. 
and fourth, that the road to the Middle East may be open to the Germans. Egypt is merely a sideshow as compared to the, uh, to the Syrian and Palestine possibilities in Iran and Iraq. Those are the dangers that threaten all the United Nations. They are threatening our whole global war strategy. Forget about the bogeymen that we were frightened of last year. The bogeyman of the Red Army being destroyed, of Russia being knocked out of the war, a separate peace. Those aren't the dangers in 1942. The dangers in 1942 is that this year, the Axis may get enough resources to fight a long defensive war. That's probably one of the reasons why Mr. Wilkie is going out there. If the Middle East falls, time is on the Axis side and Germany fights a defensive war. Therefore, we now might be said to be witnessing a race between second fronts. Can the Germans establish a second front in the Middle East before the United Nations establish one in Western Europe? And that's the world today. I'm broadcasting now about the Dieppe raid at a time when details are just becoming available. I'd like to say this to you in Canada. We've suffered heavy losses, and I saw our men die, but never have I seen men die more bravely or fight with such great heart as our Canadian troops. The word Dieppe may rank with Vimy Ridge in our history, and our hats are off to the Royal Canadian Engineers and the Royal Canadian Army Medical Corps and the South Saskatchewan Regiment and the Queen's own Cameron Highlanders of Winnipeg and the Royal Regiment from Toronto and the Essex Scottish from Windsor and the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry and a Fusilier de Montréal. A lot of those men will never return to Canada. I believe a lot more will return after the war if the German announcement of 1,500 prisoners is correct. And added to the above, the officers and men of the Calgary tanks, whose story is one of the greatest that can be told about our Canadian part in this action. This was a combined operation, and I've spoken about the Army. Playing an equal part with our troops were the Air Force, the Marines, Commandos, and the Navy. I'm trying to find out now what percentage of the Air Force was Canadian, because I feel sure it was a great percentage. At least nine aircraft fell to Canadian guns, and many more were damaged. What a marvelous job they did in the face of intense fire from accurate and powerful German shore and ACAC batteries. Our losses haven't been sustained without reason. We've learned a most valuable lesson which may enable us to free the continent of Europe and end the war. We know now how the German system of coastal defenses operates and how best to attack. We know the tremendous weight of artillery the enemy can bring to bear on the beach. That was the purpose of the raid, as set out officially and told before we set sail to defenses and Germans and to obtain information. We did all those things, things which the Germans have never been able to do to us. We moved large forces across the channel unnoticed by the enemy. We landed men on all six beaches, and we landed tanks in our new tank-carrying vessels, and one of which I was a passenger. Costly as it has been to Canada, the raid was definitely a success. Without this experience, a second front would have been suicide. <clears throat> now let me start from the beginning. The plan, of course, was a closely guarded secret, and the men weren't briefed until they were on board the ships. 
Although I didn't travel with the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry, I was present when their colonel, a fine figure of a man from London, Ontario, came on board and told them, men, we're going into action. We're going to do what we came over to do, get a crack at Jerry. And then he told them the nature of the operation and what was expected of each man. There were no heroics, no delighted yells of whoopee. The men were quiet and asked questions. It struck me that the questions were those that a general might ask when being told of an operation for the first time. What were the coast defenses likely to be? What aircraft protection would they get? I liked the spirit. We set sail in craft of all types under the cover of darkness. I was with the Calgary tanks in one of the new tank-carrying craft. It was a lovely night and reminded me of home. Hardly had we set sail and our padre collected all the men together in the bow of the ship, standing in front of a new type of tank they were using, and he read from the sixth chapter of Ephesians with the aid of a flashlight. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. In a few words, he told us that in a few hours we would be striking our first blow to bring a sign of deliverance to the people of Europe, and the reason for this service was because we would need God's help. The men were quiet as we slid out into the darkness under the lovely stars. I could read my watch in the light of the half moon, and soon we said goodbye to the dark shores of Britain. I had a chat with the officer commanding our particular troop of tanks, and he told me about the hard work they'd put in for weeks to get them ready for this action. He was confident in them and in his men to whom he said all credit must go. And now I'm just going to quote from the notes I took as we went along, some written in the darkness and some written in heavy gunfire, so they are now smeared and dirty from the cordite. And all the time I kept wishing I had a microphone in my hand. So taking notes in this way was my only substitute. On the way over, I went to sleep for a while, lying in my trench coat on a coil of rope on the deck, and then I went up on the open bridge with the young captain, a sub-lieutenant in the RNVR. And now for my notes, just as they were written. AA tracers, like red sparks, and there's a heavy red glow extending down the coast. Our bombers are at work. More heavy flash of coastal guns and bombs. Our aircraft are flying in close to the water and over us. And now dawn is breaking, also like a heavy barrage to the east. There are puffs of smoke in the sky, evidently from heavy German ACK-ACK batteries. And the ships are weaving in. Our lads are calm, and the tank men, wearing black berries and sitting comfortably anywhere, are watching the action. The sky is becoming full of aircraft, and the bombardment is becoming intense. Heavy thuds are shaking us, even this far out to sea. The captain is calmly steering us along. Port 10, midships. 
one bright fire is burning on the port horizon. Our medical men have put on their steel helmets, and the guns are quieter. Perhaps the commandos have landed and are fixing them. The destroyers are holding their fire and sinking along beside us. The ships are spread out behind us in long lines with gun crews mounted, each flying a black flag and a white ensign. There are fighter patrols like flocks of geese high up, and the bombers are scurrying home in the low haze over the water. The fighters look like swallows, but in geese formation. It's now 5.50 in the morning. Fast troop-carrying ships are starting to pass us now. And there's a French chasseur carrying French commandos. The coast has suddenly loomed up in front of us with its white hills and its cliffs. And it looks like a race to see who'll get in first, get into action first. The sky is streaked with fighting pools, and so is the ocean. The destroyers are laying a smoke screen to windward, and now they're turning broadside and they're plastering the town with their guns. The smoke screen is lifting, and I can see ships everywhere. The small troop-carrying landing craft are moving in in lines under the artillery barrage. A spitfire has just crashed off our starboard bow and into the sea like a stone. We could see the pilot trying to get out, but he couldn't. The troops are heading for the beaches on either side of the town, the Royal Regiment to the left and the South Saskatchewan and Queen's Own Camerons to the right. The Hamiltons and the Essex Scottish are going in the center and we're following. Two Messerschmitts have just tried to attack us and the ship behind us has just shot one of them into the sea. Our tank troop captain has come up to the bridge to warn the captain that it's only a few minutes until our zero time. He wants to get going. So we're hoisting our signal now, meaning we're shorebound. And in we go. It's now 6.45. Planes are everywhere overhead, but the shore guns are firing at us and at the small troop-carrying craft ahead of us. I can see casualties. Men are in the water. Our tanks are warming up, and they're starting to climb the ramp, which will be lowered like a drawbridge when we reach the beach. Machine gun bullets are whining around us, but our guns are cracking, too, at the aircraft over us. A tank landing craft is getting its tanks off behind the troops storming the beach, and heavy bombs have just dropped astern of us. It's a heavy Junkers, and she's trying to stagger into shore. She's full of lead from our guns. The tank landing craft ahead of us got its tanks ashore, but she's sinking now, trying to get out. And we're being stopped by orders from going in. And destroyers are laying a smoke screen around us. There's a heavy German gunfire from a tobacco factory. I can see it sweeping the beach. Another Messerschmitt is down. The Ack-Ack fire is wonderful, and a heavy bomber has just been driven off. He was trying to sneak in on our right, but a destroyer's guns got that, Jerry. Our tank men are disappointed, but now comes an order to try to go in again, and they're delighted. The German shore batteries are still active. They're firing at us. Four Focke-Wolf bombers have just dived on us, and two of them disappeared in flame. Our, our barrage is unbelievable, and I'm covered in black suit. Shells are falling on all sides of us. We can't get into the beach, and we're ordered again to retire. Three pilots are coming down by parachute. Another tank landing craft has managed to get in, but has been hit. 
Some casualties have just been brought out to our ship, and the padre of the Fusiliers, the Morial, told me about trying to get on shore. Men were killed all around him, and one lieutenant had a bullet in his arm while he was trying to push the padre down. It's now 9.25. The Germans on the cliffs are even throwing hand grenades on our ships below. Nine Heinkel bombers just passed overhead, and I saw their bombs leave the aircraft, but I was too interested to watch the gunfire and to care where the bombs landed. They were aimed at the destroyers ahead of us, but they missed them. We were heavily attacked again, and the convoy guns had just brought down two more Yonkers. There's just a sort of flash of flame, and the bombers come down like leaves in the wind. And now dive bombers are attacking us. One of them has just been shot into the sea. Strong reinforcements of our fighters are arriving, and they're flying low around us to protect us from the dive bombers. We can't get into the beach. We've tried again, but bombs and gunfire are driving us out. I've just been knocked down by a heavy bomb. In fact, a stick of four bombs. I've very near missed to starboard. Some of our men are wounded. One of them is dead. Our fighters are wonderful, and they're fearless, and they're trying to protect our men on the beaches who are being re-embarked. Our aircraft are suffering heavily, and I've seen several come down in flames over Dieppe. The wounded are being brought off, but we hear that we have landed on every beach. Evidently, the engineers have suffered heavily, and were unable to blast away for the tanks for about an hour. The tanks formed a square on the beach, and they're protecting our men from being re-embarked. The colonel of our tanks has attacked a machine gun post on foot. The South Saskatchewan's got in safely, but the Queen's own Camerons following them have been hit by six-inch howitzers, and there are casualties. I'm listening to our tank shortwave equipment, and I know they're fighting like fools on shore. I can hear one of our tank captains saying, Come on over, boys. We're killing lots of Heinrichs. We're ordered to maneuver out of the harbor. It's afternoon now, but the destroyers are remaining behind just a few hundred yards off the shore, and they're sending in small boats to bring out our men who can get away. They're wonderful. We've been here eight hours now, and small craft are streaming out under bombs and gunfire. Well, those are just quotations from my notes as I wrote them down. I wish I could continue, but my time's up. I wish I could tell you about the journey home and the hundreds of stories I know about personal acts of bravery. I wish I could tell you now how we feel as we wait for final news. But I'm going to be broadcasting again later tonight with several other war correspondents who will be with me. And we may be able to give you the full picture then between us. It seems reasonably certain that our losses are as heavy as they were at Hong Kong. I hope you in Canada, despite those losses, will feel very proud that our men have been able to play, at last, the part they've wanted to play. I do know that they've fought well and that everything, things which seem to have exceeded the limits of human courage and endurance, have been done to protect our troops during the fight and to get them off after it was over. Those of us who've managed to get back, even wounded, feel very lucky indeed. It's been a bitter, hard fight.